Hey, good afternoon to you. Welcome to Tuesday's Richie Allen Show live from Salford. Hope you're well. It's uh, dull and grim and wet and miserable out there. But we've got each other. You can reach out to me during the programme. Send a message via the website richieallen.co.uk or use the app. Download the app and send a message that way. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yes, it promises to be a fascinating program today. Clifford Miller joins the program this hour. Now, Clifford is a retired lawyer. A retired lawyer, okay? Uh, He worked for a top 10 City of London law firm in intellectual property and competition law. He's also got a physics degree from Imperial College. We're very interested in Clifford because he acted for Andy Wakefield in a defamation case against the British Medical Journal. I've invited Clifford on because Andy Wakefield is in the news. Uh, well, he, he has been in the, in the news for more than a decade, but he is in the news this week because of the return of measles, okay? And he was struck off the medical register in this country after being accused of serious professional misconduct when a study was published in the Lancet Journal, Medical Journal, claiming the MMR jab was linked to developmental... God, I'll say it again. Developmental issues, autism and whatnot, and colitis in about a dozen children. Andy Wakefield stands by the findings of that study to this day and he has told me that on this radio program uh, more than uh, once okay so we'll speak with clifford clifford miller this hour a bit later on paul craig roberts the former u.s assistant secretary of the treasury will return to the program uh, that's an hour too you don't want to miss that either so a good program then it looks like being and i've already given you the contact details so get in touch and let me know how you feel about these issues and other issues too i don't mind you know i was thinking this afternoon salfordians people in salford they don't take any any old shite as we say in ireland they take no crap uh, at all whatsoever i like that you often hear this said of yorkshire people oh, yorkshire people they're they're not backwards when coming forwards i i'd take the pepsi challenge and say that there's nobody like salford people it doesn't matter what you do or what you have whether you are a prince or a pauper if you come from salford as i said no matter what the job title you have doesn't matter who you are you take no guff from anyone salfordians are united by a total intolerance to bullshit, as evidenced by this wonderful article in the Daily Mail today, or I should say the Mail Online. The Mail Online. I love a bit of this. So I do. (laughs) Shall I read it for you? Or some of it? Okay. So the headline is GP, that's doctor, if you're overseas, GP tells lesbian couple to find a man to sleep with, to have a baby. What's going on? A lesbian couple eager to have a baby were dumbfounded when a doctor asked them why they had not found a man to sleep with and did they know that you needed sperm to have a baby? Yes, only in Salford. Alyssa Hillier and her wife Kaylee 
from Manchester are fundraising to pay for private fertility treatment after failed attempts in the UK and Denmark. So they booked an appointment with a GP in Salford to discuss their options in February 2023. So they booked an appointment with a doctor, a lesbian couple who wanted a baby. So they went to see this GP and said to him, we want to have a baby. How can you help us? What do we need to do? And the male GP said, you do know that you need a man to have a baby, don't you? They were flabbergasted. And then he said, you do know that it needs to be sperm, don't you, from a man, in order for one of you to become pregnant. And Alyssa said he stared at us for a little bit and he was like, why don't you just go out and find a man to sleep with and be done with it? When we left, we sat in the car in silence and we were absolutely shocked. Like, did that actually happen? So they've launched a podcast now about their fertility problems. It's called No More Men. Get out of my surgery. Stop wasting my time. I'm here to see sick people. We want to have a baby. What do we need to do? Well, one of you needs to have a penis. And it seems that neither of you do find a man, love. They wanted him to um they wanted to get fertility treatment free on the NHS and the doctor said feck off. We're having none of that. Only in Salford. Don't mess around in Salford. They're not having it here. I don't mind telling you. <laughs> doctor, we won't have a baby and we're we're just looking for some advice really. Find a penis, preferably one that ejaculates semen, ejaculates, and then use it. Preferably with the permission of the owner of said penis. Get his permission first and off you go then, love. Here's an interesting one. This made me laugh today. They're trying to rerun the Brexit referendum on the radio at the moment. Their radio. There's only one radio. On a number of radio stations. I don't know why. Brexit hasn't happened. It never will happen. It was never meant to happen. Something which is my opinion now. That is my opinion. You might have a different opinion. You're you're welcome to it. But um, it was never meant to happen properly, is what I meant. No real separation between the UK and the European Union. And, and I've evidenced this on this particular programme over the years. I've explained it. But they're rerunning this referendum. I don't know why. It's to do with the cost of living crisis, I think. The cost of living crisis. And they're saying, well, if we hadn't uh, committed suicide... If we hadn't committed economic suicide by leaving the European Union, maybe we'd be better off. Which is bollocks, in my opinion. Again, that's a technical term, by the way. Bollocks, okay? So this idiot, James O'Brien, who works for LBC Radio. Um, I mentioned, I don't know what I called him yesterday. Lord Ho-Ho's bastard grandson or whatever I said. But uh, he's hilarious, this guy. He attempts to use an analogy to explain the sovereignty argument and why the sovereignty argument is nonsense. See, a lot of people voted to leave the European Union in 2016, not because, now I mean, some probably did. I mean, there were probably some people who don't like brown-skinned people or just want Britain to be for the British. I'm sure some people voted with immigration in mind, but a lot of people voted because the the European Union is a, fundamental, a fundamentally anti-democratic organisation. Again, we spent weeks on this leading up to the referendum in 2016, didn't we? Weeks on it we spent, explaining it, right? We had members of the European Parliament on the programme. We had academics on the programme. All of them agreed, even the pro-EU people agreed. It's a fundamentally anti-democratic organisation. 
Yes, okay. You might remember um, Comrade Corbyn, uh, Jeremy. Um, one of, of course, it was a complete hypocrite and reversed himself on the European Union. When Jeremy was bum chums with people like Tony Benn, going back to the 1980s, they were vehemently opposed to the UK's continuing membership of the European Union because of the detrimental impact it was having on workers' rights. But then Jeremy, of course, he had to reverse himself, didn't he? And uh, he said, well, we're, we're better off trying to change it from within. You can't change it. Anyway, so James O'Brien today, and it made me laugh because it's um, intellectually redundant, as you'd expect, attempted to explain why leaving the European Union because we want to be sovereign is bunkum. He says it's nonsense, and he tries to explain it by talking about selling cars. It doesn't go well for him. Let me tell you very briefly why the sovereignty argument is a complete red herring, right? Can't wait. Right? I have got a car to sell you, and I want £10,000 for it. Yeah? But you don't want to pay £10,000. So either I don't sell you the car, or we negotiate and come to a deal that you'll pay nine and a half. Yeah, which is called a negotiation. Most people, when they set a price for an item, an item they are selling personally, they are, unless they're stupid, most people realise they're unlikely to get the full asking price. Doesn't matter what you're selling. I've sold some things on eBay over the years, not, not many things, and certainly not for a long time. And I think at one time I sold something on Facebook, a long time ago. I set a price for it, knowing full well I wouldn't get the price. Knowing full well somebody would say, I'll tell you what, sure, you want 40, do you? I'll give you 30, how about that? Done. So it's a negotiation. All right, the minute that I agree on nine and a half, I'm... The minute you agree on nine and a half... I'm surrendering sovereignty. I'm surrendering sovereignty. <laughs> because you have had an equal say in the <gasps> process of what that car will cost to me. Oh, Jesus. So every time you sell something that you listed for £25 and you sell it for 22 you've given up your sovereignty. According to the galactically stupid James O'Brien, it gets worse. These absolute halfwits who use sovereignty as an argument for uh, Brexit... It was a good argument to use. Those who use the argument we should leave to preserve the UK's right to sovereignty, to national sovereignty, for its parliament, for its government, to make decisions in its best interests without having to get permission from 26 other member states. That was a good argument, James. It was a cogent argument. It made sense to people, including me. Let's leave so that if we want to do a trade agreement, I don't know, with the with Oman or with the Congo, we don't have to get permission from another country to do it. Sovereignty, James. Believed that we would be able to tell the rest of the world the terms and conditions upon which we would trade with them and that they would bend the knee, doff the forelock. No, 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 that's nonsense. Bre Brexit has nothing to do with the rest of the world. This guy's galactically stupid. I know I've said that already. Listen to what he says here. Brexit was about leaving the European Union so that you could do trade deals with countries around the world and again, as I've already said, not get permission. Listen to this. The terms and conditions upon which we would trade with them and that they would bend the knee, doff the forelock and agree tug the forelock even, doff the cap, and agree. And the consequences of that jingoistic arrogance are probably best contained in that phrase, I don't know, maybe it's Spice Girls say days. No idea what he's talking about there. That's, that's what sovereignty looks like. Believing that you get to tell the rest of the world... Not the rest of the world, you idiot. You didn't understand Brexit. Brexit was all about getting to do trade deals with the rest of the world and not having to get permission from Brussels. 
you cretin. That's what it was about, really. Well, it wasn't. It was about far more than that. But that was a central argument. You know, we'd like to do deals. Deals that benefit us. And we shouldn't need to get the permission of, I don't know, France and Germany and Belgium and the Netherlands and Spain. We shouldn't need to get their permission to enter into a contract with another sovereign state. This guy is really thick, isn't he? The terms and conditions upon which they can trade with Rule Britannia and then discovering that, in fact, they've got just as much heft as you. The Indian uh, deal, should it ever emerge, is going to scare the bejesus. Nobody knows what he's talking about, not even his producers. It's absolute garbage. You see, when the, you, you, when, when the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union, um, we, we were immediately subjected to a two-year um, negotiation period. You might remember that. Uh, the triggering of the famous article. Remember it? What was it called? Article 50, was it? Where you have to basically announce once the vote has come in and the votes have been counted and the people have decided to leave, you've then got to trigger the leaving process. The leaving process takes two years while you negotiate your way out of the union with Brussels negotiators. And that's where it went horribly wrong because the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was a devout Remainer despite what he said in the run-up to the election, and he sent negotiators to Brussels who were patsies who themselves completely believed in the UK being in the European Union. The negotiations should have taken about two days, as we said at the time. Namely, you say, right, we've left. Sorry that we've left, but you're going to be nice about it. You're not going to impose any ridiculous or exotic tariffs on British goods going into Europe. And I'll tell you why you're not going to do that, because you sell far more to the UK than we sell to you. You begin to threaten us and tax us, we will reciprocate and you will be assassinated by BMW, by Citroën, by Mercedes, by the winemakers, the cheesemakers, the food makers, the furniture makers of Europe. They will kill you if you attempt to uh, play games with us because you sell more to us than we do to you. There is an imbalance there. That should have happened, but it didn't happen because there was no genuine attempt to extricate the UK from the EU um, properly, to get out of it and all of its institutions, as you well know by now. Interesting that. And of course, I could spend the next 10 minutes talking about how undemocratic the European Union is. Uh, for example, wherever you happen to live within the European Union, Ireland, as I said, Spain, France, Germany, you get to vote for local members of the European Parliament. You get to send people to Brussels. Problem is, they do not have the power to propose legislation. It's completely undemocratic. That's a power uniquely reserved for the EU's executive arm, the European Commission. And guess what? The European Commissioners are completely unelected. Yeah. Yeah. They are proposed by the heads of states. The Council proposed them. It's completely un undemocratic. It was an organisation set up with the best interests of globalists and corporations and corporatists and that's all I'm going to stop. It's a soapbox. I've done it too many times. Quarter past the hour. This is a Tuesday's Richie Allen show. You do not want to miss. I mean, you really do not. Uh, Clifford Miller, retired lawyer, will be on the programme. Physics degree, Imperial College, overachiever.
Very nice fellow, by the way. Spoke with him today. He acted for Andy Wakefield in his Texas defamation case against the British Medical Journal. Andy's been in the news today, yesterday. Measles apparently is running rampant in the UK. I don't know if it is. They're blaming it on Andy Wakefield for publishing a study in The Lancet that linked the MMR jab to autism. They're saying today, they said yesterday it was debunked, he was a fraud, he was struck off. But that story is far, far more interesting than Sky News or the BBC or Channel 4 News would have you believe. So Clifford Miller this hour, a little bit later on, Paul Craig Roberts will join me on The Richie Allen Show. What am I doing now? I'm doing more news, am I? Am I? Okay. Yeah, listen to Mariam Francois. Have you ever heard of her? Dr. Mariam Francois. She makes documentaries these days. She's a, I suppose, a documentary filmmaker, journalist. She appeared on a programme called Sky World, which airs on Sky News. And you can hear her giving it to the presenter, giving it to her. The presenter uh, opens the discussion about US and UK strikes in Yemen against Houthi rebels. There were more strikes overnight, you probably know this, okay. It's proved to be controversial here with the Speaker of the UK Parliament, Lindsay Hoyle, complaining that the you know, Parliament needs to be notified about this type of thing and there needs to be a robust debate in Parliament as to whether it is appropriate for the government to be, well, joining in striking inside Yemen against Houthi rebels who are being blamed for attacks against uh, freight ships, cargo ships in the Red Sea. The Houthis say, well, we're standing in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Palestine and we are attacking ships, really, that are either Israeli or UK or US ships because those two countries more than any other countries um, give material support to Israel. So they were discussing this on the Sky News programme Sky World. Marianne Francois, doctor, uh, filmmaker these days, um, on the attacks, on the attacks inside um, Yemen. Here's what she had to say to the presenter. Sorry, so just let me get this straight, Yelda. So we are bombing the poorest, one of the poorest countries in the world that has been under a humanitarian blockade. There has been famine. These people have been decimated. And we are bombing them because a couple of guys in dinghies in support for the Palestinians who are having a genocide committed against them. They're objecting to that and we're bombing them. Come on now. I mean, well, this it, is just I, an insane world for us to even think. I'm so sorry your Amazon packages are delayed. I really am. Like, I wish mine came on time. But, you know, genocide, guys, genocide. There are two mothers a day dying in Gaza right now. It's 109 days into a conflict in which a humanitarian crisis has been declared to the world day but by in, the way, day out. Uh, by the way, Dr. Francois, there are many who are Yemen watchers who, are, who monitor and follow the Houthis who say this is doing wonders for their branding, actually, mm-hmm. that it isn't just the Palestinian cause that they're focused on. So call a ceasefire is- now and end the positive branding. If you want to stop the Houthis doing what they're doing, then call a Do ceasefire. Right- call a ceasefire now, she says. Funnily enough, there is a motion before the Irish Parliament this afternoon afternoon as the Doyle the Irish Parliament the, there is a motion before um, Irish TDs members of Parliament there to basically to do just that to call upon the Israeli government to 
and declare an immediate ceasefire. Depending on who you believe, it's been reported today that the Israelis are prepared to call a two-month-long ceasefire if Israel receives guarantees the hostages will be returned. And of course the hostages should be and must be returned, regardless of who you support, regardless of if you, like myself, have been a long time supporter of the rights of the people of Palestine in Gaza, they should return the hostages. That's a crime. It's a, it's a, it's a crime against humanity to keep people um, hostage, to hold them hostage. Um, children, women, whatever. Right, so she goes on to say... Right now, these would, would stop doing what they're doing. If they have literally said that that's why they're doing what they're doing. They have not previously blocked those routes for any other reason except this one. So yes, I do. And I also think the West needs to start to understand that you can't just go around playing cowboys in the world. There are consequences to your actions. You cannot just go around bombing people's countries, ignoring international law and expect no repercussions. For every cause, there is a consequence. And just because you don't like a couple of guys trying to resist... I mean, the these fact are that this is now prescribed terrorists. Uh, sure, according to Western governments, well, they are also according to the Yemeni yeah. people, because yeah, which is the Saudi-backed government, yeah. which is essentially our. But but yeah. the Yemen don't expect to hear Dr. Mariam Francoise on Sky News anytime soon. That'll be her last appearance for a while. I, I, I reckon. I'm not endorsing. I mean, I obviously agree with most of that. I'm not playing it to endorse it. It's just rare that you get the other side of it on Sky or even the BBC these days. Now, joining me in a couple of minutes, Clifford Miller. Later on, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts. I'm going to take a tune now while we line up um, Clifford. I want to give us as much time as we... I want to have as much time as I can with Clifford up to the top of the air at five o'clock because it's very important. Uh, so it is. You can send messages to me, of course, comments, whatever, to richieallen.co.uk, comment live there, or you can use my app. Download the app via Apple's App Store or download the app via Google Play. Don't worry. I won't hurt you. Don't know what that's all about to you. I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, the programme this week is sponsored by NutraHealth365.com Joint support. Go to NutraHealth365.com If you suffer from joint pain or inflammation, you have probably heard of the benefits of turmeric. But did you know that the active ingredient is curcumin? NutraHealth 365's Joint Health Supplement is specially formulated to reduce the pain caused by joint inflammation, especially during the cold months. Joint Health contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract piperine, to substantially increase its bioavailability, and thereby reaching your inflamed area faster. If the cold weather is making your symptoms worse, and you want relief, Go to NutraHealth365.com and see how our joint health supplement may help reduce inflammation and discomfort. That's NutraHealth365.com with free two-day track delivery. Lovely. That's a bit better. 22 and one half minutes past the hour. Uh, this is music from Robert, Robert Palmer even. Do you think I need to go to the dentist and have this bridge replaced? Because it, it sounds, it feels like my teeth are falling out. Stumbling over my words as I am. Uh, music from Robert Palmer, that's Addicted to Love. It's uh, 27 and a half minutes past the hour of 4 o'clock. It is Tuesday, the 23rd of January. Thank you for your messages and thanks to Chris for correcting me. Chris, thank you. I was on one. Yes, of course, Theresa May, after the uh, 
the departure of David Cameron following the loss, from his perspective, the loss of the referendum. Of course, Theresa May became a Prime Minister and those initial negotiations, she, of course, was the PM. Of course, she was. Johnson was very, Boris Johnson, of course, very much involved in the campaign to leave. But um, his heart was never in it because Johnson had been previously, historically, an arch-Europhile. No doubt about that. Anyway, we'll leave that one there. We'll return to it, no doubt. Before we welcome Clifford to the programme, Clifford Miller, as a retired lawyer, um, let me just do this, OK? I'll do it as quickly as I can because I want to hear Clifford. Andy Wakefield, you, you know who he is, Andrew Wakefield. He has been on this programme many times in the past, but not really. I think 2021, I think, was the last time we had him on. Now, just to quickly give you the, 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 the timeline. Back in 1998, in fact, I think it was um, late winter, 98 February, I think. Andy Wakefield led a group, uh, a group which published a study in the Lancet Medical Journal. It published a paper which detailed the cases of 12 children who had been referred to the Royal Free Hospital in London. Okay? The children had developmental issues, they had bowel problems, colitis. And Andy Wakefield and his partners in the study, all of them, um, said that clinical analysis of endoscopies and biopsies performed on the children showed that um, the measles, mumps and rubella jab, the MMR, was most likely the cause of the problem. That's what they said, right? Uh, the MMR jab, most likely the cause of the problem. Um, so, we'll skip on a bit. There was a big press conference, the news media got involved, and Andy Wakefield described a new condition, something he called autistic enterocolitis at the time. The media interest was massive, I've just said that. He said at the time that precautions could be taken, like using single jabs instead of the MMR triple jab, until it could be ruled out as a trigger. Okay, he said, I can't support the continued use of these three vaccines given in tandem until this issue has been resolved. Now, in the mid 2000s, the Sunday Times got involved and they said that Andy had not disclosed the conflict of interest on his part. And therein began um, uh, an investigation, publication after publication. I'm speeding through this, right? Which led up to Andy being struck off the medical register in 2010 for professional misconduct. And ever since then, and this week, today, yesterday, his name has been brought up every time they talk about the measles jab or if there's any perceived... I don't know, fall off in the numbers of children being jabbed, they give Andy a mention. As I said, it's been in the news for days now is that there is a measles outbreak in the Midlands and they're blaming this on um, Andy Wakefield. And what they are saying, what, what, what they call his debunked claims that the MMR jab is somehow linked to autism. Now, my guest this hour is a former lawyer. He's a retired lawyer. He worked for a top 10 City of London firm. He also has a physics degree from Imperial College in London. He's been published in science journals and legal journals. He has taught. He has written a book. And he acted for Andy Wakefield in a defamation case in the United States against the British Medical Journal. Um, Dr. Jane Dunnigan introduced me to Clifford Miller. He has put together a series of films, right? We're calling. Uh, he's calling the films How the Case against Andrew Wakefield was fixed in Eight Steps, a 21st century medical controversy. I'm delighted to welcome to the programme uh, Clifford Miller. Clifford, welcome to the show. How are you? 
Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you, Richie. And thank you for inviting me onto your show. Thank you very uh, much. I've, I've given you the longest introduction I've ever given a guest. I'm out of breath. <laughs> I, might, I might need to sit down, Clifford, for a few minutes. But but this, this you believe, I, I think, I, I can't, you know, speak on behalf of you, but you believe that Andy's case and the public perception, if there is a public perception, that Andy did something wrong and that he defrauded the public when he claimed there was a correlation between the jab and injuries. You believe that it is as important now as it was back in 2010, 2013, and even 1998 that we talk about this case, because you believe that Andy's research was sound, you believe his colleagues were sound in the way they conducted themselves, and that ultimately he's a victim of, you know, a gross miscarriage of justice. Tell us why. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Back in, on the, on the 6th of January 2011, the British Medical Journal, uh, three editors published an editorial. This is one year after Andy lost his medical license with uh, Professor John Walker-Smith. Um, and the editors published an editorial saying that um, this one man, Andy Wakefield, had committed fraud and he changed all the diagnoses in the paper um, so that the entire paper was a fraud. <clears throat> That's what they claimed in a nutshell. And um, the paper in the BMJ was written by a journalist, not a scientist or anything else. And um, not a, a journalist who's prepared to say pretty much anything. Um, and I can demonstrate that. And what I do is I show in these videos that the truth of the matter is that Andy Wakefield didn't commit any fraud whatsoever. Um, and it, in fact, it was... It, I. I I was the only person, it seems, out of 8 billion people in this world, to have uh, scanned the um, publication by the uh, British Medical Journal and uh, studied it in depth, and I figured out exactly what they'd done. Um, they'd literally rewritten um, what the paper actually said into uh, what it didn't say, and then they just changed, uh, and they used those changed uh, uh, fake diagnoses to say that uh, they didn't match the children's medical records. I mean, it, it, it's pretty extraordinary um, uh, in that it's um, so blatant, but nobody, and especially the journalists, didn't notice. How could, how could a doctor who has 12 authors of that paper change all of their diagnoses to fake ones to allege that a vaccine causes autism. So how did they get away with that then, Clifford? In your opinion, how? Because I would imagine that Andy Wakefield and his co-authors were probably screaming from the rooftop saying, hang on a second, that's not what we put in the public domain. We put something completely different. So why were, were they screaming from the rooftops and why did the newspapers ignore what had gone on? Well, one of the reasons for this is that you, you have to look very carefully at the 1998 Lancet paper and compare it with um, what the British Medical Journal alleged. Um, and it's really like a magic trick. And in fact, in the videos, I start off saying it looks like magic, but it can't be. How did they do it? And what I do in the in this, by the way, the, it's an eight, a series of 18 videos, but some of them are about four minutes long. Um, I've just broken it down so that uh, it's really easy to digest into manageable chunks. Um, so, essentially, they, they, there were 
eight steps I've broken it down to in, 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 into how this was done. And um, the, the key aspect to this is that the British Medical Journal claimed that all the evidence was in the medical records, which was published in the transcripts of the GMC case against Andrew Wakefield and Walker Smith and um, Professor Simon Murch. Because um, it was the three of them who were uh, prosecuted by the GMC. And the main issue in that case was whether they had um, ethical um, approval for what they were doing. Um, so it wasn't about committing fraud, writing a paper about the MMR. Um, so in terms, of, in terms of the steps, step one was to switch the real diagnoses with fake ones. I mean, this sounds extraordinary, but um, it is actually what was done. Um, and I explain it in, in step, in simple steps, blow by blow, video by video, um, it, it, exactly what was done. So that was step one. Once you switch the real diagnosis with the fake ones, it, it then it's then plain sailing because step two was the fake diagnoses won't match the medical records, so claim fraud. Um, then step three was tell everyone it's science. And this is extraordinary, and I have absolutely got the documentary proof of this. The British Medical Journal issued copies of um, their publications on the 6th of January 2011 um, to the press. On the, they did it on the 4th of January. So they gave advance notice to the press. This is what they're going. Well, this is what we're going to be publishing. And the article they published that they based their fraud allegations on has at the very end of it. It says externally peer reviewed. By who? It wasn't. By whom? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it, it doesn't say that. Yeah, it should it say that. If you're going to claim that something has been peer reviewed, you should give. Oh, yeah, you, but it ex, externally. Externally, yeah, yeah. I, I totally get this. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't peer reviewed. It wasn't, it wasn't even. Wasn't even fact checked. And we know that from the litigation, because I was in London in the Barbican, in the offices of Vincent and Elkins, the BMJ's um, U.S. attorneys with their London offices, and I was there with. Bill Parrish, an absolutely skilled Austin, Texas lawyer, um, intellectual property lawyer like I was. Um, and um, he it was quite a dramatic moment. He asked one question of um, uh, Dr. J, uh, not she's not a doctor, Jane Smith, the deputy editor of the British Medical Journal. She was responsible for fact checking. And Bill asked me, is there anything else I need to cover before we finish the deposition? Uh, de by the way, deposition is... Um, where you video the witness and record the witness, um, where they're <clears throat> basically being questioned by the other side um, as, a, as a step before the litigation proper, step before the hearing. Um, <clears throat> I'm not a US attorney, so... No, uh, but we've all we've all we've all watched The Good Wife. Most of us, so we're we're, yeah. we're well briefed on but, on depositions I mean, now. Yeah, you know, there, there's a, there's a vid, there's a video team there, and, and and you know, the court approved video team. We had the Vincent Elkins lawyers, uh, me and Andy and Bill, and and Bill says, "Is there anything else I I, I need to cover?" And I I whispered to him, "We need to do deal with the fact checking." So he he asked Jane Smith one question. She had to leave the room to compose herself. And the question was, was it fraud for Mr. Deer, that was the BMJ's author, to claim three children did not have autism diagnoses when they did? 
How could he get away with that? Can I just go over that again, Clifford? Because it's 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 it's, it's, bo- it's bombshell stuff. This right? This, so this, every video is a bombshell. It's I a mean, bombshell. Yeah. I'm I'm I, I'm I don't have a problem telling everybody how they did it before, because. Every single video, there is stuff in there that will curl your toes. But it's horrifying that it's so simple, you know, because it should have been very easy for, I mean, the Sunday Times, if the Sunday Times had any, um, or wanted to maintain any claim to authenticity and to journalistic standards, you know, it would have jumped on this straight away and it would have reversed itself. Let me just remind our listeners. What happened in 1998 was the Lancet paper, as Clifford has said himself in the report he sent to me, it faithfully reported the results of these investigations. 12 kids, 12, sorry, 12 specialist expert medical professionals working in London at this Royal Free Hospital looked at the problems being experienced by 12 kids. The kids developed bowel disease. They suffered developmental regression. Nine of them were diagnosed as autistic, two more as having autistic symptoms, and one suffered catastrophic regression within a short time of vaccination, but had no autistic symptoms. This was all put into the paper, which was published by The Lancet. I'm, and I only knew this, I mean, Andy Wakefield never said this to me in the times I spoke with him. I only know this now because you're telling me. They were able to change the diagnosis. I mean, wow. And to, 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 you know, to, to, to blatantly lie about what was actually contained in the report uh, the, and the, get away the, with it. Let, 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 let me... Um, in plain English clear. for me, yeah. Let me be quite clear about this, because the Texas defamation litigation against the British Medical Journal came about because I unraveled this entire mess. And, and um, so uh, it, it, my great claim to fame is I must be the only guy in, in 8 billion people to have noticed what they did. Yeah. But the key to this was, the key to it all was trying to fathom out from that paper where the evidence was. So it was a it was a rat's nest of confusions with conflated times and dates. It it was it was a classic um legend uh, where you couldn't really tell what was going on. Um and I I came across purely by accident. Oh sorry, in terms of let me just go back to the tell everyone it's science point. Um not only did they put in the in the paper they gave to the press externally peer-reviewed the version they published in the journal two days later as a pdf said not externally peer-reviewed yeah so they were telling the press that it was it was peer-reviewed when it wasn't and the and the and the formally published version uh, said on it not externally peer-reviewed but let me come back to um how this how this all came about the, the the key aspect to it all was that the children's medical records were recorded in eight and a half thousand pages of gmc transcripts and that's about eight and a half million words um and when i when i was looking at this paper that the bmj published and looking for where the evidence was i came across a bizarre little um, document called a web extra document, um, and it, there was a there's a link to a PDF, and it turned out to be the 
what was supposed to be the BMJ's evidence, these fabulous tables which correlated what the Lancet paper said versus what they claimed it said. So there you had the smoking gun. And there were 96 footnotes to these two tables in this PDF document, uh, which was published at the same time with the um, allegations against Andrew Wakefield of fraud. So the footnotes were in about five point, absolutely impossible to read. So I copied them out, got them legible in a font size you could read. And hey, presto, guess what? There was not a single reference to any of the children's medical records in those footnotes. Not one. Nothing from the um, GMC transcripts. So I then tracked down what the GMC transcripts said about what the children were suffering from. And in each and every case, for each and every aspect, um, the Lancet paper matches the, what was the medical records. And to be clear about this, we're talking about medical records from the children's GPs and other hospital doctors years before they ever got to the Royal Free Hospital. It's not that's not something that uh, can be fixed or um, changed. It was it's there in the GMC transcript. So it's all there. Everything there is in plain sight. What the Lancet paper said about how these children deteriorated after they had the vaccine uh, is absolutely true and correct. So um, essentially what we've what we've got here is one of the many, many cover ups that we see in this country. And we've got the, one, the latest one is the post office scandal. Now, how is it that over decades this stuff is allowed to go on? But then we've got other things. We've had the contaminated blood products, which has been going on for decades as well. Hillsborough, we, of course. We had the Hills, Hillsborough. Yeah. The, Camelford, the Camelford poisoning, where an entire village was poisoned with aluminium sulfate, and it was covered up. And now what we've got, we have the autism scandal, and it's being covered up. It's, all of these things are being covered up. And what, what I would like to see is a campaign to kick Penny Morden's MP out of Parliament. And the reason for this is she is involved right now in covering up the COVID scandal. And you can tell that from the very first moment when she accused Andrew Bridge, an MP, who's trying to expose it all, right? The only person in Parliament trying to expose the COVID scandal is Andrew Bridgen. And we've got Penny Morden MP who stands up in Parliament and tells him he's a conspiracy theorist when he's actually citing science. Yeah, the excess so, death numbers are, are incredibly concerning and worrying. And there is a trend, an upward trend. There's been a, an increase in the excess death numbers. We covered this on this programme. No, no, no doubt about that. And what, 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 what I, what I mean about this is here we have a very clear example. We can point to someone in Parliament. She's the leader of the House and she's involved in covering up Willfully, by, yeah. by accusing Andrew, Andrew Bridgen of being a conspiracy theorist. She is involved directly in covering up all the damaging things that happened over COVID and pe British people died. But she takes orders, Clifford. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Well, well it does got, to me, you see, because I, 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 I take the view, and I have done for a number of years, 
that elected officials are merely front men and front women for something else. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. So with who's you pulling those that. strings? I mean, if Penny Mordaunt is willfully obstructing what Andrew Bridgen is trying to do, and by the way, Clifford, I think you're absolutely spot on there. Who is she taking her orders from? Well, uh, I, the, we we are on the, exactly the same page regarding what's going on in the background. But the reason why I focus on Penny Morden is because she's so prominent. She's directly involved in it. We can all see what she's up to. It's there in public, and she should be targeted as a lesson to every one of the other ones who are having their strings pulled. Okay. I'm, I mean, they've called. I mean, they've they went for bridging, didn't they? They Absolutely. they invoked the anti-Semitic angle. They accused him of anti-Semitism when all he did, if if I understand it, and I think I do understand it properly, was he quoted a scientist or he quoted an academic in Israel who said this might be the worst thing exactly. done to humanity since the Holocaust. Exactly. He didn't say it. He, um, he, he repeated it. That's right. I, I want to go back to, to just briefly Andrew Wakefield because this, this, this is a terrible thing for me. I've reviewed the materials over the years. I've, re I've reviewed everything you've given me. And, and of course, it all stands up. I mean, there is evidence of a massive fraud. It, it, it looks to me like Andrew well, I Wakefield... I don't, I don't ever accuse anyone of fraud, and I'll tell you why. There's no point. The facts speak for themselves. I'm not accusing anyone of committing fraud, and I'm... And certainly Andrew Wakefield is the innocent party. Yeah, but I wasn't putting but, words in your mouth now. When no, no, I say no, fraud, no, no, I'm no, calling it a fraud, Richie, right? Richie, Richie, just, just bear, bear with me for a moment. Uh, there is no point accusing someone of fraud where it's very clear that they've done something that is very bad and looks almost akin to fraud. There's no point accusing them because all it happens is if you get into a legal case and you've accused someone of fraud, you've just upped the bar of proof much, much higher than if you simply said what they did. So it, it, what's Fair happened enough. in this particular case is just stick to the facts, say what was done, say what can be proven, and, and don't bother, um, you know, accusing people of fraud because you, you just, you, just um, you know, the courts require a much higher level of proof to prove someone has committed fraud than um, just to, to prove that they literally changed the diagnosis. I am suitably, I am suitably chastened. I, I don't know the, the, the legalese. I, I, I understand that argument, by the way. Uh, so thank you for that. How difficult is it for you as a retired lawyer, as a legal mind, knowing that, I'm not going to call it anything, knowing that they did what they did, and by doing what they did, it not only led to... Andy Wakefield being struck off and being disgraced in the wrong, but also no further investigations into the efficacy or the safety of the MMR jabs, meaning that it is perfectly reasonable to assume, I, I, I would argue, that many more children have been injured by the MMR jabs since because of what they did to Andy Wakefield. Um, without without a shadow of a doubt, we, we, we can't get MPs in Parliament to face up to the statistics. That the, the, we've got two sets of statistics which back each other up. We've got the statistics officially published in Northern Ireland, which show that 7% of boys of school age in Northern Ireland are autistic. That's crazy. Shocking. Crazy. That's shocking. And the UK figures, which no one draws attention to and doesn't publish um, in, in, in exactly these terms, 
but if it's in the um, Department for Education's um, annual school census. So they record every child who's autistic. So it's not a survey. This is very important. It's not a survey. Every child in school is counted. And it's the same figure of 7%. Mentioned to you today, didn't I? I'm 49. I attended primary school in Waterford City in the Republic of Ireland. And I often, when I do say, I don't say it often, but when I do bring this up, inevitably somebody will email me and say, you couldn't have a memory as, you know, refined as, as to be able to remember everything that went on in primary school. I know that we didn't have any children in primary school that had special educational needs. We did not. I know that. I know it to be true in my heart of hearts. It was unheard of, really. And I often ask teachers about this. You know, teachers who are retired, uh, Clifford, teachers who might be in their 60s, late 60s, 70s, or even maybe not as maybe not as advanced. And and I say, you know, tell us about and they, they always come back and say, it just didn't exist, Richie. But as I said to you today, the other side says we've become better at detecting it, Clifford. Uh, I can deal with that. The Northern Ireland figures have a stage five. And 60% of the boys are in stage five. Um, and forgive me if you've got an autistic child, but basically a stage five child is like a car crash. You can't get better at detecting a car crash. A car crash is a car crash. And again, I say apologies for using the term car crash. But, you know, we're talking about the most seriously affected kids. You can't mistake them. There's nothing. 60%. 60% of the Northern Ireland figures are stage five. That is not possible to be better to diagnosis and greater awareness unless all of the doctors in the country and the psychologists and the psychiatrists who do the diagnoses um, sell matches uh, with those little dark glasses. Let let me remind our listeners who they're listening to. Um, You're you're listening to Clifford Miller. Um, Incredibly... This is incredibly important, I think. Clifford is a former lawyer, okay, published. um, He also has a science degree, a physics degree from Imperial College in London. He's done it all. He's written books. He's litigated English High Court, the EU, and he acted for Andrew Wakefield in a Texas defamation case against the British Medical Journal. He has, and I will put all of this information um, when I receive it from Clifford on the podcast notes, a link Uh, to where you can look at this uh, series of films put together by Clifford, how the case against Andy Wakefield was fixed in eight stages, a 21st century medical controversy. So when we get the links from Clifford, I want you to subscribe, get on there, and then share them with everybody else, because that's the thing about this story, Clifford, isn't it? I mean, as we speak, talk radio and talk television programmes in this country today are telling people, get out as quick as you can, Check the vaccination status of your kids. Even check your own. And if you haven't had it, go and get a jab. So it's more important, or it is as important now as, as it was then that we talk about this particular story. It's very important, this. Yeah, in, well, in, indeed. And, and you know, the, the, the reason why I'm doing this now is because of COVID. Um before COVID, and you asked, you, you were basically also saying to me, Richie, you know, how, how can I stomach 
knowing this. Yeah, knowing and, it. And I, I ha- I've had to learn. I've had to learn to wait until the moment is right. So I knew all of this in 2011. It's now 2024. And um, it's only because of COVID that I can now come out publicly and say what happened. I can prove it all down to the ground, 100% every single fact uh, that Andrew Wakefield faithfully reported what happened to those children um, and the people who told it falsely of the British Medical Journal. Okay, so I've had to wait until now because now there are so many people who know about the cover-ups over COVID. And this is, the Andrew Wakefield cover-up is one part of it. In addition to all of those other things that are being covered up, we have had um, an autism cataclysm for children in this country since the mid-1980s when all of these vaccines were introduced. Um, They tell us, we don't know what causes autism, but we know absolutely it's not the vaccines. Well, that's ridiculous. Not only is it ridiculous, I know from uh, my reading as a lawyer of cases of the um, evidence that has been produced, including in the United States um, and Japan and Italy, in cases where children have um, been injured by vaccines and uh, where it has been determined on the basis of the scientific evidence that the child's autism was caused by a vaccine. What do we say? Sorry, Clifford, what do we say? I've got to bring this up. Look, they, the Andrew Wakefield's accusers and those who accused his, his, uh, his colleagues, they did their own study, didn't they, in the mid-2000s, right, to say, right, we'll, we'll, we'll look into it. And they came back and said there was no correlation. They, they I'm reading it now, they, they looked at children with gastrointestinal disturbances and they found no difference between those kids with autism spectrum disorders and those without, with respect to the presence of measles virus or NA in the bowel. They said that gastrointestinal symptoms and the onset of autism were unrelated in time to the administration of MMR. Now, I'm not saying I, I buy this, but I'm saying this is what they did. They said eight years or so after Andy and his colleagues did their study, they said, well, we've done one and we don't find any correlation. Was that, in? And this is speculation, of course, and you can tell me to, to feck off if you want, but were, were those people, well, uh, were, were they well, honest? The, the, could, could we trust those people? Did, 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 did they do an honest look at it, do you think? The, 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 the problem with um, all of this supposed science is that um, it's epidemiology and um, it's not as good as looking at actual cases. And the problem for these people who rely on epidemiology is that we had 12 cases in this Lancet paper and now we can all see their medical records. So, for example, for child eight, her medical records, not when she got to the Royal Free, but from her own doctors, recorded her as going from 18-month-old development down to one year's development within a couple of weeks of having the MMR vaccine. And I've had parents like that never, on this program. Never, in her medical notes, her GP wrote, never the same again. Yeah. And then we look at child three. Child three was a shocking case. Child three 
crashed within a day or so of getting the MMR vaccine. And not only that, so we've got the medical records in the GMC transcripts, and we can prove all this. His GP was so shocked that she went and investigated the vaccine. She checked its batch number. She went to the National Institute of Biological Standards and Control, and it turned out it was a hot lot. That is a vaccine, a batch of the vaccine, which caused higher um, adverse reactions um, than other batches. Is that how they but, refer to it? A hot lot. Yeah, a it's, it's, it's a famous. There's a there's a famous case from Ireland, um, the Kenneth Best case. Um, he he got um, uh, he received, I think it was a DTP vaccine, and it was from a hot lot. And the key thing that got him, I think it was 1.75 million or 2.75 million pounds. The key thing that got it for him was the fact that it was from a hot lot. That was one of the key issues um, upon which the Supreme Court of Ireland determined the case. We've got about three minutes right today. No doubt we'll pick this up again, Clifford. I, want, I told you that we'd be inundated with correspondence when, when you came on. We have. I've just I've been reading them. I'm going to pick out two. Very interesting. Christine is in Limavady in Derry. Listen, uh, she says, Richie, here in Limavady, our special needs play school has had to put on extra sessions to cope with the influx of kids on the spectrum. That's Christine. Uh, This is from Sarah. Richie, in our senior school, we have a Department of Learning Support Assistances. Uh, assistance. I'm one, she says. We support these children. We are 25 staff for one school. One school, says Sarah, has so many kids on the spectrum that we need 25 staff to be, uh, you know, each one working as an assistant to one of these children. That's just two that have come in. This is why we've got to get rid of someone like Penny Mordaunt. Every single one of those MPs in our parliaments, and I know Stormont isn't sitting right now, Um, And there are some good people, by the way, over in Northern Ireland who are elected, um, who are who are chasing this down. This is why we've got the figures from Northern Ireland. But every single one of our MPs, apart from people like Andrew Bridgen, are keeping their mouths shut because they are too scared of um, speaking up against the most powerful lobby in the world, the drug industry lobby, which has got its claws into every um, aspect of Whitehall which comes back to the point you were saying that these people are only, you know, like Penny Morden, are only doing what they're told. The point is that we have external influences on Whitehall and we've got faceless bureaucrats in Whitehall who are responsible for all of this, all of these cover-ups. The only way that they can go on for decades is because of Whitehall and the people in Whitehall who are having their strings pulled by external influences. And the person who allowed all this to happen was Margaret Thatcher. She allowed um, the civil service to develop contacts with industry and commerce back in the 1980s. And I remember my father saying to me at the time that this is a recipe for um, corruption. And that is exactly what it's become. And uh, all of these external, we don't even know who the people are who are pulling the white strings. No. And and, and, um, if you watch the Yes Minister series, it, although it was Margaret Thatcher's favourite comedy, it is actually chilling to watch it now because we, you know that they're pulling these stunts all the time to stop the truth coming out. Hillsborough, absolutely appalling. Camelford, you know, people were poisoned by aluminium sulphate in their water supply. 
and 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 it's it's neurotoxic it's highly toxic neurotoxic you get it through the skin um they're taking showers and it was coming through their skin you know it 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 it, it terrible terrible stuff and then we got the contaminated blood products where they imported um contaminated blood from places like the united states which has been taken off drug addicts and what have you That's right. um and and given to british people um does that give you hope by the way because the scandals you mentioned eventually saw the light of day does that give you some hope that the mmr the the autism scandal has not been um uncovered we have a we have an absolute catastrophe for children in this country and for new parents any young couple starting and thinking of starting a family you, you they need to know that um well seven percent what's that roughly um was it one in one in 12, 14, something like one in 12 or 14 boys is going to be autistic. So they, 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 there's a massive chance that if they have a, a boy, he's going to be autistic. Um, the, the reason why it's so high in boys is four out of every five cases is a boy. Only one in five is a girl. Um, so it, 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 we have got a cover up ongoing right now. Your show today is going to help to uncover that so that people can talk openly about this and about the real science. We know what the science is. We know how vaccines can cause autistic conditions. We've got it reported in expert reports in legal cases in the United States and um, Italy and Japan, um, you know, showing what the problems are, showing where the science is. Um, there's, there's published papers on it. Um, and uh, it, it's not as if we don't know and the Hannah Poling case in the United States in 2008 um, was broken by a journalist, um, uh, David Kirby. He's a New York journalist. He broke the story. Uh, and this was where the United States government had settled her case for a sum in excess of $21 million. Um, she gets she gets $750,000 a year, roughly, uh, for every year until her 59th year. Um, and she got a one and a half million dollar settlement and uh, her autism was brought about because she had nine vaccines in one day. Jesus, yeah. um, and it's reported it's reported in a medical paper. Um, her, her expert um, acting on her behalf was, in fact, the same expert who acted for the U.S. Department of Justice. It, there's much more to that story. It's a real, real scandal because basically there were 5,000 cases running in the United States in what was called the autism omnibus proceedings. Um, and Hannah Poling was one of the three um, test cases. So what the U.S. Department of Justice did was her case was so strong, they secretly settled it as a test case. So it's a fraud on 5,000 other kids' cases. They took her out of the, the um, proceedings by settling her case for 20, $21 million so that she was no longer there to prove that the vaccines cause autism. It's absolutely shocking what they did over there. Totally corrupt. Um, and, and that is what they did. They settled her case. And it was only because um, uh, somebody leaked the decision to David Kirby that he was able to break that story in the States. That story was one of the top 10 stories in the United States for the whole of 2008, and it was still in the top 10 in 2009. Um, and there were, there were TV talk shows about it and all sorts of things. And now, all of a sudden, we've, we've forgotten. 
you know, um, there we have it. Our government was making statements in Parliament saying, oh, yeah, it's, she had a rare um, disorder. Um, and that's why it happened. But it was not a rare disorder at all. A lot of, a lot of people have mitochondrial dysfunction. Not to it's mention... Quite, it's, it's quite common. Clifford, not to mention, just before we do part company for today, we'll pick this up again with your permission another time soon. Not to mention, it isn't that long ago that our governments uh, were urging people to consider taking pandemics for swine flu. And uh, that caused catastrophic reactions in people. Yeah, uh, I mean, all of those kids have got narcolepsy and catapult. That's right, and it's only just over a decade old. And yeah, you know, well, people... yeah, but there's there's a, there's still a scandal there. Yeah, because because our MHRA, I I wrote about this in 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 the on online on the BMJ's rapid responses. Our MHRA did nothing about the adverse reactions report, and it was left to a couple of Nordic countries to uncover the fact that there was a, this link. So our MHRA had the yellow card reports all the time where they could have shown that there was a problem and dealt with it and stopped the vaccine being given. And it wasn't for, I think it was Sweden and um, maybe Denmark um, were, the one, were the countries where the, their experts revealed the fact that there were this high level of um, uh, cataplexy and narcolepsy. That's right. That's absolutely so right. That, that is our MHRA covering it up. Well, she was asked during a a parliamentary committee hearing. June Rain was asked how she saw the role. What was the role of the MHRA? And rather than say to the MP who asked her, I would have thought she would have said, "Well, our job is to robustly scrutinise every drug that comes into the country to make sure it does no harm." She actually said, and I do have the audio clip here. Uh, she said, uh, "It's our job to provide access." That was an astonishing answer, Clifford. We're bang out of time, and um, please come back. And I do mean that. Where can people watch the films you've made? How the case against Andrew Wakefield was fixed in eight steps: a twenty-first century medical controversy. Where can we get it? Search online for. Euripides Substack. That's E U R I P I D E S. Euripides Substack. Or you can search on um, how the case against Andrew Wakefield was fixed. That might take you there. Yeah, um, I put the links on if, my if podcast. You, if you might, if you might put the link on your um, website, that that could help. I will. I'll do it straight after the show, and, and I'll and, put and, the notes on the podcast as well. There'll be a link on the podcast notes. So when people get it on iTunes later, Spotify, there will be a link they can click on immediately and subscribe. But, Go ahead. Well, I also sent you um, uh, Professor Jacob Pulliel's paper, which he submitted to the BMJ and the Lancet. It's a very elegant paper. It's very short. It's only about four or five pages. Um, you can download it. I, I sent you the link to download from for, for your listeners to download it. But they, they can read what the BMJ did in that paper. The Lancet refused to publish it. They've got an obligation to set the scientific record straight. The Lancet refused to publish it, and the BMJ refused to publish it. And by the way, when the BMJ published all that, they failed to disclose their um, when they, when they accused Andrew Wakefield of fraud. At the very same time, they refused they they failed to disclose the um, commercial agreements that the BMJ Group had with the MMR vaccine manufacturers. And they, had right. to, they had to, um, when they were caught out on that, they had to publish um, an acknowledgement that they failed to do that. An irony, of course, because later on, Andrew would be accused of a conflict of interest. That's right. Clifford, thanks for coming on today. It's, it's hugely important. The most important thing I'll do this week or yours any other is, week. Yours is the first show where this has ever been aired. Is that right? 
Yeah, this whole thing about how the case against Andrew Wakefield was fixed. This is the first time I've spoken on air about it. Um, the the videos, by the way, um, are, are going to come out in a week or two's time. They're all set up to come out. I'm just waiting until the subscriber base builds up and people know more about it. So your show is really going to help in that. No doubt, um, yeah. We'll, like I said, it'll go on. The, the way, I'll put an article on my website with the links and it'll go on the podcast notes. And I'm telling our listeners now, uh, the Euripides Substack account, get on there, subscribe and share the information with don't, everybody. But don't pay for a subscription. Don't pay for a subscription. No, that's, that's only, only the, of the 18 videos in the series, the first five are absolutely free to view. Um, the remainder are going to be on um, a pay-per-view. Um, but the main reason for that is because you know how many trolls are out there these days. And if they, if they want to troll my site, then they're going to have to pay for it. They're going to have to pay to troll you. I, I, I totally respect that. Clifford, thank you for coming on. And thanks again to our mutual friend, uh, the great Dr. Jane Donegan. Thanks, Clifford. Speak soon. You're welcome. Bye. And bye for now. You've been listening to Clifford Miller, a retired lawyer. Um, who's also got a physics degree from Imperial College in London, litigator, author, acted for Andy Wakefield, um, who, of course, was embroiled in that scandal back in the 90s and noughties. Andrew Wakefield, who, along with uh, 12 colleagues of his, published a study in The Lancet saying there was a correlation, causation, between the MMR jab and catastrophic colitis and developmental problems for children. A number, a dozen children they studied and uh, you know what happened after that. It's exactly 13 minutes past the hour. I'll be back with you in about 40 seconds. If you suffer from joint pain or inflammation, you have probably heard of the benefits of turmeric. But did you know that the active ingredient is curcumin? NutraHealth 365's Joint Health Supplement is specially formulated to reduce the pain caused by joint inflammation, especially during the cold months. Joint Health contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract piperine, to substantially increase its bioavailability, and thereby reaching your inflamed area faster. If the cold weather is making your symptoms worse, and you want relief, Go to NutraHealth365.com and see how our joint health supplement may help reduce inflammation and discomfort. That's NutraHealth365.com with free two-day track delivery. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. My guest this hour needs little or no introduction. He's been a friend of ours for many years and graced our programmes for as far back as I can remember. He is a brilliant author. You will find his work at paulcraigroberts.org, former US Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. It's our friend for the first time in 2024, and hopefully not for the last time. It's welcome back to Paul Craig Roberts. Hello, Paul. Welcome back. Hello, Richie. Thank you. It's lovely to have you on, Paul. Thank you so much. I'm going to just jump straight in. You're not a sensational guy. You are a sensational guy, Paul. You're a sensational guy. But you're not somebody who engages in sensationalism, which is one of the reasons I like you. But I'm going to ask you this. I'm 49. You, I'm not going to say how old you are because people might gasp and they might fall down in shock and surprise. But you've been around a few years. Are we now as close as we've been since the height of the Cold War to the escalation of 
Um, are we closer than ever now to a global conflict, which could be catastrophic for you, me, and everybody we know? What do you think? Uh, yes, I think so. I, I think that uh, the situation today is far worse and more dangerous than it ever was during the Cold War. Um, I, I would say it's actually worse than at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the reason is that today um, there is uh, no contact between uh, the United States and Russia. Uh, the United States uh, and its own initiative has, has uh, deep-sixed, thrown away, torn up all of the arms limitation agreements that were achieved during the 20th century. And they have demonized uh, Russia, its president, in ways they would never have considered doing during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So I see it as a very dangerous situation. And also I would add, Richie, that I think that um, the American neoconservatives who control our uh, foreign policy, they're very intent on attacking Iran, on basically destroying Iran like they did Libya and Iraq. And I'm concern that uh, there's a lack of proactive action on the part of Russia to prevent that. You know, Putin showed uh, a certain strategic proactive behavior when he intervened in Syria to stop Obama from invading Syria. But little else do we see any proactive action. And one thing that is clear is that right now, what is needed to stop the expansion of the troubles ongoing in the Middle East, you know, they've already expanded from Israel and Hamas to the US and the Houthis, and Iran is the target. What is needed is a, an announcement of the Russian, Chinese, Iranian Mutual Defense Treaty that would stop the expansion of this, of this conflict. And yet we don't see the kind of proactive action. There was a report just the other day that Iran and Russia are, are on the verge of making a pact that acknowledges each other's sovereignty and, and their commitment and so on, but it, it's not exactly as far as it was reported, a mutual defense treaty. And I think that's what's needed and China needs to be part of it because that then makes it clear that any sort of concocted uh, reason from Israel and the United States to attack Iran brings them into direct conflict with Russia and China. And nobody, not even the American neoconservatives, are that insane. They simply would not do that. And I think that would stop the expansion of the conflict in the Middle East. And I don't understand why we don't see leadership from Russia and China and Iran to produce this. 
You make a very good um, argument on paulcraigroberts.org. I read your website every day. You send me the articles, but you don't need to. I know you've got a huge mailing list, so they go out automatically when they're published. But I read it today. I was fascinated by it. On the one hand, it's good news that um, you say that Putin has understood that Russia cannot be left unprotected, um, or sorry, that Iran cannot be left unprotected, and that it's a good idea, the pact, but you criticise Putin for making an error that the pact was announced before it goes into effect. Why does it matter when it's announced, Paul, do you think? Well, um, if it hasn't gone into effect, the neoconservatives will say, hey, it's time to attack them now before this goes into effect. There's not a pact, so let's take advantage of the opportunity right now. Um, so... You, you don't you don't announce packs until they are in, in effect because uh, people who intend to attack Iran, I mean, look, everybody in the Russian government and the Chinese government and the Iranian government have to know that it is the intention of Israel and the United States to attack Iran. They're just looking for the excuse. And if it doesn't materialize, we're likely to have a false flag excuse. So this is something the world faces. So why all the hesitancy to come up with a mutual defense treaty that stops that type of an attack? I don't understand it. I don't, I don't understand the hesitancy. Uh, if you... I mean, this should have happened several years ago. And now we have an announcement there's, a, there's an agreement in the works. Well, you never announce it till it's there because it lets someone take advantage of its absence, but knowing that it's coming. And so they say, let's do it now. We can do it now. Just not, this thing's not signed. So that's why I think uh, that's why I think it matters. And you know, the neoconservatives have been wanting to attack Iran for as long as I can remember. And certainly, as far back as 1979, anyway, Paul. Well, well, we know they they paid Saddam Hussein to do their dirty work for them. Can I ask you about something that's central? To your argument, um, but by the way, folks, you'll read these articles, paulcraigroberts.org, and do support this journalism, by the way. Will war result from the ever-hesitant Putin? There might be some good news here. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu's approval ratings are less than 13%. Um, he is loathed, he is palpably hated by the Israeli electorate, if you believe noise is coming out of Israel. And here's an interesting one, Paul. You may have seen this today, you may not have seen it. The Telegraph uh, newspaper here in the UK has run an interview with former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, and his criticism of um, Netanyahu is unprecedented. It's incredible. He's accused him in the Telegraph today of prosecuting a vengeful war and that if it doesn't stop, Israel will sink in the Gaza mud for years to come. That's a direct quote, and wait for it. He said that Netanyahu is propped up by far-right ministers, and he compared these ministers in Israel to the Proud Boys. 
He basically said that Netanyahu is being propped up by racists and lunatics and this is the only reason he endures and basically it's now time for Netanyahu to go. So Netanyahu's position is becoming increasingly untenable. What do you think, Paul? And this might be good news. What do you reckon? Yes, I think I think it, his position is untenable. Um, and it was untenable before this started. And the reason he, you know, he is a minority. He has a minority government dependent on these really far right groups who are racist, they, they want the genocide of Palestine. But you see, uh, he had uh, not just political problems, but legal problems. I think he's under indictment. And so he cobbled together this government because if he's in office, they can't do anything to him. And so I think his plan was to get this war going and seize uh, all of Palestine and then be the big hero who ended the Palestinian problem, in which, in which case, you know, the Israelis would be very proud of him. And I think in cahoots with the American neoconservatives, he planned an attack on Iran. And so now that it's come to light that he hasn't much support, this makes him more dangerous. Because if he steps down or somehow gets removed, he's subject to this indictment. And he hasn't succeeded in making himself the national hero who solved for all times the Palestinian problem. And, and the problem of the opponents to greater Israel, primarily Iran. So I think it makes him more dangerous. And I think the American neoconservatives are so closely allied with him, they are in effect his agents inside the United States government, that it's a very dangerous situation. The fact that he has no support and that he is under attack from former Israeli prime ministers, I think this makes it more dangerous. It, he, he's become desperate, and this makes a person reckless. So whether it's hopeful, I mean, it's hopeful in the sense that you said, but it has the downside that it can lead to even more reckless and irresponsible behavior than we've seen already. Yeah, that's a good argument. It's an interesting argument, that, and it might be it might be right. You just hope that there is enough common sense in the higher echelons of the Israeli military that any move to engage with Iran would be, you know, would be dismissed. That you know that that it, that itself might finish Netanyahu. I mean, you'd like to think the Israeli people just wouldn't tolerate it; they wouldn't stomach it. I mean, what's really interesting is. He is being blamed more than the leadership of Hamas for October 7th, isn't he, Paul? He's being blamed for it. They're laying the blame squarely at his feet because, you know, the security arrangements were obviously terrible. And then you have the hostage situation. He's being blamed for that. We saw a number of families invade the Israeli parliament yesterday, screaming abuse at the politicians there, blaming them and not blaming Hamas, saying, do something, you know, stop it, ceasefire. What, what do you think about rumours that are around today? 
and last night that there is a deal in place brokered by the Egyptians whereby Israel would agree to suspend hostilities for two months so long as Hamas says, okay, we will return the remaining hostages. A two-month ceasefire, Paul. That sounds promising to me because like you, I'm sickened and disgusted by the uh, horrendous loss of life in Gaza. So what do you reckon to that? Two-month ceasefire and the hostages to be released? Well, Richie, I don't know what, what these rumours are yeah. true or not. But my question would be, what happens after two months? Yeah. You see, it looks to me just like uh, the typical way this, that this has been going on for decades. Uh, Israel engages in violence against uh, the Palestinians. Uh, a fuss is made about it. Um, they uh, back off some sort of, and they talk some more about a two-state solution or something. They back off. And then after time passes, Israel again starts the violence. And then the same thing happens. And they talk about some agreement or something. And then it stops for a while and until all the pressure on Israel drops down. And then it starts again. So I think the same thing will happen after two months. Yeah. It'll be two months for all the accumulated uh, world pressure against Israel, the South African case, and all the rest to to stop. But the problem is not solved. What? How do you solve the problem when the when the Israelis claim that Palestine is theirs and that it's not? for Palestine, and then the Palestinians are saying they've been stealing our land since 1947 or whenever it was, and we've got hardly any of it left, and it's not a resolved problem. It's, it's certainly not going to be the case that Israel is going to have a two-state solution. In fact, what's left of Palestine to make a state out of? There's, there's nothing really left. No. They've, they've taken it all. You know, if you... People talk about the West Bank, but if you look at it, it has shrunk so much. It's now just a few pinpoints, and then they're not even connected to one another. The the little villages are almost isolated, and so I don't see that it means anything. It's just it strikes me as just another case, Richie, where they use this to get the pressure off Israel and let everything kind of go back to normal and people can talk about solutions that never happen and then it'll start up again. Here's something that might be slightly different. You're right, I think, I, I can't argue with that, but here's something that might be different. I've not, I mean, I've been covering this particular issue, um, Palestine, for, I don't know, 15, 20 years I've never heard Western governments discuss sanctions openly. I never have. But I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it lately. The, look, I know the Irish government doesn't have very much authority. It's a fiefdom of the European Union. I know this. But even in Brussels, the European Union itself is talking about, you know, sanctioning Israel. If um, They've even talked about um, brokering some deal without the Israelis or even without the Palestinians, basically imposing a set of conditions on, on Israel and on the region. And they're talking about sanctions. Now, Paul, you know, decent people have been calling for 
the rest of the world to sanction Israel for decades, to punish them financially for the crimes against humanity in Gaza. Um, we have, people like us, but elected officials never dared to say anything like that. But now they are. Would that give you any cause for optimism, just a little bit? Well, if they're real, you see, they could be just part of the setting the stage for the two-month ceasefire by uh, seeing this sort of stuff. It looks like there's pressure on Israel, and, and therefore there's more reason for Israel to agree to the two-month ceasefire. So as to whether it's actually real or not, I don't quite see how it could be because it would be anti-Semitic. It would mean that uh, yeah. Western Europe, again, was going to have a, a holocaust against the Jews. It would, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'd be very happy if this is real and it would, it would mean that the, Israel is finally worn out acceptance of, of its unacceptable behavior. But it could just be part of the diplomatic maneuvering to, to create the environment for the two-month solution. Yeah. And it, it may be giving, you know, false hope to the Iranians and the Syrians and, and uh, the Yemeni and whoever else, and even Hamas. So I just don't know, uh, Richie. Um, so much is said that's not meant. It's part of posturing, setting up a framework, yeah. setting up some kind of. And I do think that they are under pressure and need to uh, get out of it some way, and that maybe um, the two-month ceasefire is is the plan. Whenever you come on the programme, we get um, inundated with messages, comments from listeners through the app, the Richie Allen Show app. Lucy is listening with great interest. She is a, she's an avid reader at paulcraigroberts.org. Lucy says, two months ceasefire, I see this as a possible trap with a false flag operation pulled off by the Israeli government against their own people in order to blame Hamas again and regain international approval. That's not a bad... Um, shout or a bad um, guess from, from, from Lucy. She says in the two months, basically, it gives Israel the chance to do something nasty or to allow something happen, blame Hamas, and then go back in to Gaza and finish it off. That's interesting. PaulCraigRoberts.org is where you'll read Paul. Check him out. You're listening to Paul. He's the former US Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. He was in the Reagan administration. He's an author, public speaker. You'll Sadly, not so much on American television these days because of what he says. Uh, but Paul, luckily enough, we still get to speak to Paul on this programme and he appears on many other programmes uh, around the world as well. Can we talk about another article on the website this week, which uh, I think is hugely important. We're talking about World Health Organization and plans for pandemic treaties. We're talking about this week on the programme and on your website, uh, the, the World Economic Forum in Davos. What about um, Bill Gates? COVID having failed to do the job, Bill Gates is making a second run 
at culling the population. It's an article from yesterday on paulcraigroberts.org about Bill Gates and plans to introduce more and more vaccines to people in conjunction with uh, who you describe as Big Pharma shill Tedros Ghebreyesus, Disease X. What's going on here, Paul? What do you think? Well, it's uh, very curious, isn't it, Richie? Uh, the World Health Organization, which is not a health organization, it's a political and a propagandistic organization. Um, they have they have said that oh, um, there's another pandemic coming, Disease X. How do they know that? They're claiming they got a crystal ball. How do they know that? And then a bunch of the scientists who are on the payroll, a big farmer and and WHO, and they say, oh, it's going to be 20 times more deadly than COVID-19. Well, how do they know that? They're talking about something hypothetical, and it's going to happen, and it's going to be, and they know how deadly it's going to be. You, you can't know anything like this. We, we can't even predict the outcome of a conflict that's going on right now. <laughs> yeah. And they're talking about a hypothetical uh, new virus. Where is it coming from? Is it which lab is going to release it this time? And how do they know it's deadly unless they already know what it is and they intend to release it? You you can't go around predicting pandemics. They're unknowable in 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 advance. You learn them when they happen. Moreover, it looks like the opinion, the opinion of the independent medical scientists is there was no pandemic. An image was created of a pandemic by a variety of factors. One, they use that PCR test, which is known to produce an extremely high rate of false positives. The inventor of the test himself says it cannot be used to uh, determine that you've got COVID. Well, they use a test that produce false positives up to 97% to create the image that this pandemic is everywhere. Everybody's got it, it's everywhere. Well, it was a product of a test that they knew produced false, false positives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then they talk about the dead from it. Well, the people who died from COVID, for the most part, in fact, almost the entirety of the deaths from COVID were from non-treatment. The protocol was to go home and do nothing. And if a week later you can't breathe, come to the hospital. And then they stuck ventilators in them and killed them. And they prohibited the use of known cures like HCQ and ivermectin. So the de and now we know the death rate from the vaccine itself is higher than the claimed death rate from COVID. Now, do we know this, my friend, my learned friend? I've got to interrupt you there. How do we know this to be true? Because I understand why you think this, and I kind of think it too. But the independent media itself 
there are so many, and I, I call them, well, I don't call them, but we would look at them as plants, people that are placed into the independent media to discredit other, more credible people. Like, it's been claimed that 17 million people were killed by the jabs. Now, it might be true, Paul, but why should we trust that? That's a huge number. It's actually... More, do you think? Not as large as you would think. You, you can trust it because... We have all of these deaths everywhere that are unprecedented in medical history. We have the sudden appearance of turbo cancers among the vaccinated. They're not happening to the non-vaccinated. Turbo cancers that spread so quickly, nothing can be done about it. Even in kids, children. Yeah. Okay, we have athletes all over the world in the prime of life dropping dead on the playing field. We have, for the first time ever, a blood clot never before seen or experienced, these long stringy things. My friend has, I have a friend who has them. You, you can just look at the injuries that were sudden Look at the measurements of excess deaths. You can't ignore those, right? You can't ignore those numbers. Following the vaccination, the excess deaths exploded. Well, why? So the big farmer shields, they want to say, oh, it's all just a coincidence. Well, that's a awful lot of coincidences. It's a a bit too many, isn't it? Over here, they use the excuse that, well, when we shut everything down for COVID, this meant that people were not able to get, um, you know, procedures, tests, scans. And because they didn't, we didn't diagnose their terminal cancers or their their terminal heart issues. So they, they use this as an excuse to explain the excess death numbers. They say some people are dying because they weren't given scans, which I think, okay, it might account for some excess deaths, but not this amount. This amount is just off the charts, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. If you, if you had an, if you already had heart problems and you were having trouble and you couldn't get to the hospital because of the COVID stuff, yeah, you're going to have a very low chance of surviving. But their excuse in no way can account for the sudden appearance of turbo cancers. No. They can't account for the sudden appearance of these very uh, unusual, strange, never-before-seen blood clots that are just long strings of things. They can't account for, for the first time in history all over the world, athletes in the prime of life falling dead on the field. Do you know, Paul? We've not seen that before. Do you know, you won't know this, but you will know what Manchester United is. You've heard of Manchester United. It's the biggest soccer team in the world, right? Uh, The most most famous, anyway. Not successful these days. We're a bit like the Chicago Cubs, Paul. Not great these days. I say we because I'm a fan. I attend home games. Um, We get about 76,000 people at home games. 75,000. And I swear to God, I would never lie. Um, Three times last season, during the games, play was suspended because somebody in the crowd collapsed. Three times. I never... 
I've been attending live sporting events all my life. You've been attending live events, concerts. We never saw this, Paul. We never saw play being stopped because somebody in the crowd is dropped unconscious. It just didn't happen. Not, not, not at such a rate. And yet, you know, we're told to look the other way. Do, do you know, you mentioned turbo cancers. Paul Craig Roberts is our guest today. Um, the Times of London said that turbo cancer is a conspiracy theory term and it is pseudoscience. It's nonsense. That's what the Times <laughs> of London says. So if I asked you, right, if I never met you before t- today and I said, Paul, how would you describe a turbo cancer? What do we mean by that term? Well, you know, the oncologists all over the United States, that is, people who specialize in the treatment of cancer, all over the country, they're all saying, we've never seen this before in history. Never. These cancers are suddenly there. They are vast. They're so huge. They... They're developing so rapidly, we can't even treat it. You're finding all the oncologists saying that. So what did, where did this Times of London get any yeah. information or any authority? I, we handed it by Big Pharma. Pfizer handed it to them and said, okay, we're going to pull the ad so you can run this. That's all the Times does. That's all any American, British, European newspaper does. They print what they're handed. I know that. I'm a former Wall Street Journal editor. So what's the Times of London doing? It's lying for its living. That's what's going on. Just look at all the oncologists, at what they're saying. My God, my God, we've not ever seen anything like this. What in the world? How did these little kids catch cancer? Why... I mean, listen, oncologists here are saying the same thing. Let me briefly ask you, because we've got about six minutes after this and I want to ask you something else. Um, How were you able to get away with when you edited the Wall Street Journal? How were you able to get away with having some integrity? Like not printing bullshit and not taking the brown envelope to publish lies. How did you get away with that? When I was at the Wall Street Journal, the newspaper was independently owned by a family. And the family had the tradition of newspapers that we tell the truth. That's what we're here for. The Wall Street Journal today is part of Murdoch's chain. Yeah. As is the Times. You can see, yeah. So the Wall Street Journal, uh, and it wasn't relying on big pharma ads either. (laughs) And uh, so, um, but there aren't any independent, independently owned newspapers anymore. I mean, they've all collapsed. Look what the Guardian, when when the MI5 came down on the Guardian, they collapsed and handed over all of the Julian Assange material and and, um, uh, started attacking him instead of Instead of protecting him, instead of doing their duty, which was to protect him, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. So that tells you that uh, who has the power is no longer the papers. Independent papers had a certain amount of power and influence, and they could hold governments accountable, and they could. But you see, none of them dare do that now, and they wouldn't be permitted to do. 
in the United States, uh, six firms were permitted to purchase 90% of the independent media. So the media was concentrated in six hands. Yeah. It used to be thousands of newspapers and radio stations and all the rest. And it's, it's all now a, a, a monopoly. <clears throat> so there isn't any, whatever a newspaper says, you can safely assume it's serving some agenda of the ruling elite. And not serving the interests of the readers of the paper. You're right, you've written about this for years. The death yeah. of the death of media plurality. It died. It happened in Ireland, my country. You know, right. every local radio station was run by a family or a business. And we had complete um, free reign to do whatever news we wanted to do. And then a couple of corporations started hoovering up all the commercial radio stations, and now they're all owned by a couple of companies. You're right, Paul. By the way, you were criticising the PCR test earlier on. There is a version of the PCR test which is completely trustworthy. And that is, I can run a statement by Paul Craig Roberts, and he'll tell me if it's bullshit or not. That's a, that's a PCR test right there, Paul. I run a, I run a statement by you. That's my PCR test. But yeah, isn't that so important? We don't often talk about it enough. But how they managed to, um, to basically take complete ownership of the media, that's one of the most important things that happened in the late, well, not the late, but the, the, the 20th century and then the 21st century. How we used to have, like, your, like you said, the, the, the journal was owned by a family. The family said, you guys do the news. We'll, we'll worry about the advertising. You do the news, report the truth, hold power to account. And that's dead now. Um, you're right, six corporations own pretty much 96% of all the world's media. And of course, many of these corporations have huge links to the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world, which is why the newspapers never challenged the COVID narrative, Paul, right? That's right. That's right. And the real interesting question is, is the concentration of ownership in the media, was this a plot? Was this part of the destruction of freedom, of liberty, of democracy, of accountable government, um, of the First Amendment, because you see the newspapers and no part of the media, not the TV, not the newspapers, they do not defend the First Amendment, which is the basis of their existence. They don't defend it. So was this all, how did it happen that the media, see in the United States, the tradition has always been a dispersed and varied media. And all of a sudden there's no, there's no dispersed or varied media. There's one voice. It's almost the exact same words in every newspaper, in every TV talking head. It's almost the same words. And there's unanimity of opinion. They all agree. So was this intentional? And is it part of the kinds of, of uh, orchestrated wars we get, orchestrated pandemics? See, what is the real reason 
for w, for who to say, oh, you, we're going to have this great pandemic, and so everybody must turn over all of their personal health care decisions to us. There's no more doctor-patient decision-making. Oh, no. Who will make the decision for the whole world? And so what who is doing is taking control over your health treatment, not you and your doctor. That's over and done with. What do they want that for? What does that serve? It doesn't serve the health of anyone. It serves some overarching control purpose. And if you look at the concentration of the media, the same thing has happened in finance. I almost have come to the belief that what the Federal Reserve does is it produces banking crises because it, because it only bails out the big ones. Yeah, that's so right. The big ones buy up all the little ones and they get more too big to fail. If you look, you know, Chase Manhattan was a huge bank. J.P. Morgan was a huge bank, but now they're all merged. So when you find gigantic monopoly national banks merging, what what is going on? And of course, every time there's a financial crisis, the big banks step in use the Federal Reserve's money pumped into their reserves and buy the ones in trouble. And so the concentration continues. Try to find some economic activity that's not concentrated. You're right. This, You're right. This, yeah. And this is despite our Sherman Antitrust Act, which is supposed to prevent monopolies. And we have a situation in this country, and we've only got 90 seconds left today. I'll give you the final word. You're right. What it leads to is bank branches disappearing from town centres all over the world. And it becomes more difficult for people to bank in person. Eventually, it leads to the disappearance of cash from society. And when cash disappears entirely, and we end up with a central bank digital currency, the control of the financiers will be nearly absolute, won't it, Paul? And I'm going to give you the final word on this. Uh, Paul... Uh, one of one of my favourite guests, I don't say that lightly, I love having Paul on, uh, read him at paulcraigroberts.org, uh, buy his books, support his website. Uh, when you do read the articles, share them and do contribute um, because there's nobody lining up to advertise with people like Paul Craig Roberts. That's the way it is now in the independent media. Paul, final word to you and thanks for coming back. I hope we'll do it again in February because it's always a pleasure. Yes, I, I enjoyed being on your show and I really don't have a final word, and I think your point that digital currency is our future, this is really scary, and it's correct, because once it's digital currency, you are powerless. They can take everything away from you, and you, you have to be compliant, or you're simply cut off. You don't get to participate. You don't get to participate. <laughs> Paul, well, Godspeed to you. Thanks so much for coming back today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting with you again next month. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Richie. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Got sir. It.
the great Paul Craig Roberts live on a Tuesday's Richie Allen show. As I've already mentioned, do get over to Paul's website, paulcraigroberts.org. The articles are excellent. You can share them with others, as I said, and do support Paul if you can. That's about it for the programme uh, today. Thanks so much for listening to it. Thanks to Clifford, uh, who came on in the first hour. Of course, Clifford Miller, the lawyer, speaking about the Andy Wakefield case. And as usual, thanks so much to Paul Craig Roberts. The programme today has been brought to you by Neutralhealth365.com Joint Support. Do check it out at Neutralhealth365.com And closing out with Simple Minds. A kind of a seven-inch version, I think, of uh, Don't You Forget About Me. It's like today is Monday. Nothing is going my way today. Speak tomorrow. The Papers podcast will be online tomorrow just before 7.30am. And the Richie Allen Show is back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Bye for now. Bye now. Bye now.